Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 137 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Vanessa Angelica Villarreal and a little bit about her. I am pumped to have her on. She was born in the Rio Grande Valley to Mexican immigrants. She's the author of the award-winning collection Beast Meridian from Noemi Press Acrylica series in 2017, which was the recipient of a 2019 Whiting Award, a Kate Tufts Discovery Award nomination, and winner of the John A. Robertson, excuse me, Robertson Award for Best First Book of Poetry from the Texas Institute of Letters. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Oxford American, Poetry, and elsewhere. She's a recipient of the 2021 National Endowment for the Arts Poetry Fellowship and a doctoral candidate at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, where she's working on a poetry and nonfiction collection while raising her son. Her essay collection, Chueca, is, a, is forthcoming from Tiny Reparations Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House in 2023. You can find her on Twitter at Vaness, without the A, I-D, capital V-A-N-E-S-S-I-D. How are you today? Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's um, ridiculously hot in LA today, oh, no. so <laughs> oh, just no. feeling like, ugh sluggish you know oh, man. well again i'm so excited to have you and thanks so much it's really an honor you know just having uh gone over beast meridian it's like all of the hype is is merited and much much more so really looking forward to talking about all your writing but especially especially beast meridian i'd love to know i mean obviously the collection has a lot of well we'll get into like the poet as speaker i guess a little bit later you know how much of it if it's 100 you or 80 percent or whatever but I'd love to know, you know, about that childhood and adolescence that that informs so much of the Beast Meridian. Reading and writing, I mean, were those paramount in your household? Was it a a place that was rife with words? Um, you know, English, Spanish, Spanglish, you know, how those kind of all fit in. Yeah. Um, so I started reading actually really, really early. Um my uh mom would bring home these like little um, workbooks, but that's not actually what got me to start reading. Um, my, I started reading because I was consuming so much of my dad's uh, music. He would bring home these like final records um, to learn songs for his set that night. Right. Um, so I learned how to read from liner notes, which is why the book kind of starts out with like you know a uh, liner notes kind of feel. Um, uh, and also just um, even though I was I my you know, Spanish was my first language and I was steeped in Spanish um, pretty much until, you know, late childhood um, English, you know, I experienced English and learned English through American media. Um, and so, yeah, um, 
but I think I really started writing in earnest. Um, I think I wrote like my first official poem um, after my uh, grandmother died when I was 10. Mm. Um, she lived with us. So, you know, in immigrant close knit families, um, uh, grandparent dying is like having a parent die. Mm. Um, and in school, I wrote like a, a kind of elegiac thing um, on, you know, paper and construction paper. And I drew pictures to go along with it. And it had a refrain, you know, each page had like a refrain, yeah. um, which was like, grandma, I miss you, you know, or like grandma, I love you or like whatever. And um, the teachers kind of figured out like, oh, oh, she's, she might be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but like, that was like the end of like any kind of positive experience in Texas schools in middle oh, school. No. Um, I think processing grief um, you don't know you're processing grief when you're a young kid, a young pre-adolescent, adolescent. So it comes out like natural rebellious, um, tendencies, mm -hmm. um, become way amplified through grief. Um, so I was going through just a lot of stuff and the Texas school system responded, um, by just like over punishing um expelling me suspending me like uh sticking me in detention mm -hmm. i remember the principal saying that like i was the first um honor student he'd ever have to ever had to send to detention mm -hmm. <laughs> which like um i was like that that can't be true I, mm -hmm. apparently it was true for him um yeah and so in middle school i think what really helped ground me and anchor me um and keep me from sort of being disposed of um, by the institution was um, my my writing and my you know my poems. I devoured um, any and all literature I could, um, mm. and it was the only subject I was interested in. Right. And I was very um, argumentative in other classes, like <laughs> um, some teachers would have like creationist takes on biology and I would question that oh, Texas no. history was like a horrible class to take because in seventh grade even I was just like this is propaganda <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which like you know um this is the 90s in Texas and teachers didn't know you know like how to handle um yeah someone like me so they sent me to alternative school and alternative school is like this almost like prison type school. Um, it's, it's this thing that they do in Texas where um, they send their problem kids to this institution where they have basically just teachers who oversee kids, but they don't have a curriculum because the kids are all at, you know, wildly different levels. Okay. There were multiple fights every day. There were cops on campus all the time and the cops would get physical with the students Whoa. like slam students into the wall and i'm i'm here you know in alternative school um because i had cigarettes in my backpack right and like i'm with these other criminalized kids um and so all i did all i could do to survive was just read and mm. i just read everything i could mm. um and so I guess by accident, you know, I had a really intensive sort of study of language. It was like the only right. thing that helped me sort of process and express and, and move through this difficult time. That and, and grunge music, um, <laughs> you know, specifically like uh, Nirvana and, you know, bands like um, Nine Inch Nails and mm. Torianus, um, 
Rage Against the Machine, you know, things that were like really <laughs> uh against against the man uh but also angsty and um mm -hmm. you know i think like that's what sort of formed and and persists as my aesthetic you know mm. um but like i think especially you know sort of coming along my path as a poet um i think all all poets have like this sort of like feeling of alienation okay. you know um at a young age and that feeling of alienation um that feeling of of you know responding to a system mm -hmm. um or, or at least for the poets i love right that's mm -hmm. what shapes their language like salon i've been thinking a lot about salon reading a lot um yeah. salon you know how he broke german after the holocaust right it it's like by breaking the language of the state mm. of the fascist state the language of propaganda the language is, right. that can be spun right um he was able to critique language mm. and resist um like the reality that german had created as a mm. language right wow. um and so yeah like i'm i'm into poets that are rebellious in that way and innovative in that way and you know seek um the haunted and the uncanny and um yeah so i think that's that's pretty much like what my adolescence was and high school was in high school i they did not let me into the literary magazine for a what? couple of years what? i know i was like i'm so I'm that's literally, the most, that should be the most inclusive place, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, ever. you have to, you had to apply and, um, I didn't get in, um, but they finally accepted me, I think like my sophomore or junior year. Okay. Um, and you know, my, the plan was to do creative writing, um, in college. And then I, it, I just couldn't do it. I was working, mm. you know, multiple full-time jobs. I was, you know, working 80, 90 hours a week at, 16 17 18 right. oh my god um you know just, just like just trying to survive um mm. trying to help my family and um you know i had to kind of give up on the idea of being a writer for pretty much all of my 20s mm. i would take a community class a community college class here and there try to get you know credits but it just felt like getting a degree proper was so so out of the realm of possibility so right. you know um inaccessible it just felt like a dream you know oh. and you know you're watching it's like facebook is uh, exists at this time and i'm watching my peers like mm. study abroad and like you know graduate from college and go to grad school and I'll like take that gap year right or right kind of mm -hmm. yeah and i'm stuck you know behind a register or cleaning a bathroom or you know um so yeah so that's kind of how i moved through poetry before i was like a poet proper i guess mm. well thank you so much there's obviously so much there we were just talking about luis rodriguez before we started recording and like i'm not going to quote him directly but or, or correctly exactly but he, you know he has this idea of like and he's not the only one but like the idea that art should not be a luxury mm -hmm. where you're talking about you know like you didn't you couldn't you couldn't go to college and just, you know, take that time and just be a poet. You had to work, you had to make money, you had to help the family. Just the idea that he and so many others, you know, work to like make it so that art is, doesn't, is not a luxury. Art is like, you know, is 
as much as a, a part of a beating heart, you know, much of a, like a, like a necessity, I should say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I consider it a birthright at this huh, point, huh. you know, like it's, it's um, what we were actually sort of made to do on this planet. I feel, huh. you know, um, absolutely no one <laughs> is hmm. supposed to be like an insurance agent putting in data and like uh you know denying claims and um i don't know i don't know how we ended up paying rent and doing all of that stuff instead mm. of making art and enjoying our lives but yes 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 Great, great musical selections, man. Um, I'll I'll be sure to to let you know, and you can we can be the two bubbles. I'm trying to get I want to get Tori Amos on sometime <laughs> as a, as a songwriter, right? I mean, Tori yeah. Amos, Tori Amos. I think of Nirvana. I think of their unplugged, you know, performance and all of that. Um, oh yeah, angsty for sure. <laughs> for those times, yeah. Oh, man. But but like those artists in particular that I named, like their lyrics are so strange and mm -hmm. so. Yes. bizarre and like you know um it like it all of these like sort of like poetic textures like you know figurative language and mm -hmm. metaphor and just making language strange making um you know that that music in the 90s like was really tuned into this like sort of sense of um romantic poetry and the mm -hmm. sense of like the literary romantics right like okay. um looking up into the stars and like feeling this sense of awe and nihilism and romance mm -hmm. and tininess and hugeness all at once you sure. know sure. um like i think of like smashing pumpkins yeah. um Sandy's dream and like melancholy and the infinite mm -hmm. sadness like mm -hmm. you know all of these musicians were like heavily trafficking and <laughs> really intense poems oh yeah that were music you know oh yeah um, it was a hell of a time to be alive right I, i'm gonna go listen to tonight tonight earlier later which I, by smashing poems but i don't think is actually that deep maybe it's like maybe it's like you know it's kind of one of yeah. the more just like straightforward like songs but what a beautiful song i don't know what you mind of that for some reason yeah i i don't think billy corgan is as great a lyricist as tori amos like yeah i would agree I with that to, to boys for pele um okay. like under the pink like huh. you know songs from those two albums um just thinking about it like you know the song horses um caught yeah. a light sneeze you know it's just well yeah so meta you got she's got like leonard cohen on the uh the beginning of silent all these years yeah oh wow i did not know that yes he does a little <laughs> intro which i don't know if it was specifically for the song or what but anyways um and then yeah of course rage against the machine i mean huge fan huge 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 yeah. fan uh man the deepness when you talk speaking of music like when you're talking about the the poem you wrote like in, when you, as a 10 year old like the the elegy really mm -hmm. and you talk about like the repetition was that was that musical like in response like from like your dad was that like was that religious in a way i think of like a litany or something like that you know yeah it was both um so when my grandmother died um we just did so many novenas um which is a a you know where you pray the rosary nine times and um it lasts quite a long time uh mm. you know and it's it's meant to be memorized so there are a lot of repetitions um to the prayers and it's a form of structured storytelling mm. um and so 
like the rosary is part of like the rhythm of my thinking. It's like mm-hmm. the part of the rhythm of my, of like the way that I process language. Um, but I'm not religious and, and like, I, I don't attend church. I don't identify as, as an, any one religion, mm. but, um, I hold my family's Catholicism, which is very, um, it's a very hybrid Catholicism that's mm. specific to, you know, Mexican culture, mm. um, where it sort of preserves indigenous, um, practices and, um, you know, deities and, um, you know, cultural values. Um, my, you know, tias and, and grandmothers were curanderas and they would heal, mm. you know, with herbs and oils and, um, specific rituals. So repetition is, you know, something that feels very, natural and poetic to me and um yeah i i think like i've talked about this before um where a lot of my writing i'm not writing with my mind for sense i'm not writing towards sense making i'm writing toward the body and like toward like um and creating an understanding in the body um you know I don't know how to how to necessarily describe it, but the way I can sort of piece it together is like a chord change that is mm. particularly, you know, like mm. affecting, right? Um, and those are like modes, right? Like Phrygian mode or okay. Dorian mode, right? Like the way certain chord structures affect the mood and tone of a song. Hmm. Right. So like um, Radiohead would be in a Dorian minor tone. Right. Um, so are we Beyonce. talking like Radiohead creep? Or are we talking like. Um... Oh, I'm thinking like they're they're more like creepy stuff like sure, um, sure. Uh, you and whose army um, okay. um, amnesiac like that uh-huh. kind of like, you know, dirgy. Um, yeah. So when I, I write um sometimes I get stuck like if the logic of the poem is not working or something like that and so I try to write from and to the body meaning that like the language um is just like working on a different register Hmm. and I think that really comes from my dad because he is um he's really into music theory he's very cerebral he you know um can figure out a song he's not he doesn't even figure out songs like he just hears it and he can play it on the guitar it's like that level um and he's also a very intuitive composer Mm. so like the way he composes he's not he just does it from this like flow from Mm. this place of flow people talk about like flow when you're in the midst of doing something meditative or like writing and you're in a state of flow like you're with the work that's how he composes and he's able to access it like Mm. that, you know? Um, And he's not writing the song with his mind. He's writing it from, from another place. Yes. Um, And so I I think like I retain those, um, um, those, those two things, repetition, you know, and, and rosaries and, and like spiritual language um, rooted in, 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 indigenous you know um practices and music as like you know the sort of double helix of my poetry Mm. right um and yeah that's what makes up its dna (laughs) that's a great metaphor wow is your dad playing 
Willie Nelson? Is he playing Joan Sebastian? Is he like, is he playing like Led Zeppelin? Like what kind of music would that be? Um, he started out playing a lot of like rock, um, you know, Beatles, Led Zeppelin, okay. um, Deep Purple. I think Deep Purple was mm. maybe his like favorite, Jimi Hendrix. Um, and then he started going into jazz. So George Benson, um, oh, yeah. Pass, like um, Wes Montgomery, um, you know, and he just he just loved jazz because it was this. He loved the improvisation. He loved the creativity, the sort of um, freedom and like real discipline and structure that it has, right? Like he just felt like it's like the pinnacle of music making. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and that's what I grew up with. Um, Prince, you know, right. he also played in, and he had to make money. So he played in these like top 40 type bands. Mm-hmm. So he played a lot of like Janet Jackson um, <laughs> and Prince and, you know, whatever was like popular at the time. Sure. Um, but yeah, it, and he also loves, you know, classical guitar, bossa nova. Mm. Um, he's kind of a polymath, you know, when it comes to mm. music and um yeah. So, mm-hmm. but I would say like the two formative, two formative um, genres were rock and jazz. Oh man, very interesting. Who, who then, you know, really you know, get maybe adolescent into college and after, like who really then inspired your work as far as the who were the, these giants of poetry? You talked about a few, and then obviously, I mean, you talked about some of the music musicians as well, but. Who really inspired you, informed your work? Yeah. Um, I mean, like in terms of like, so this this question always trips me up, actually, because <laughs> um, I don't consider myself super well read. Um, I didn't have like a lot of um, exposure to poetry until college. Okay. And so like I've been playing a kind of catch up you know, for a long time. So like the poets that stuck with me once I got to college were Rilke, you know, um, I really loved, I mean, you know, Salon came later, Mm. but I really love Salon. I really love Alejandra Pizarnik. Um, you know, um, when I got to graduate school, um, there's a Swedish anarchist poet named Asa Berga. Um, Mm. their, uh, book with deer is like, just like this like really weird dreamscape gross at times like there's a poem called um uh breast horses (laughs) you know (laughs) like uh it's it's like a nightmare state you know um but it has just some like really strange and beautiful turns of language you know Mm. little gemstones made of blood like it's uh... (laughs) so i'm i'm into weird stuff like that um mm-hmm. i love harmony holiday um okay uh i love the black toot collective so that's like don lundy martin duriel harris um ronaldo wilson um three queer uh black poets um who do innovative um um poetry in the black arts tradition mm. um i would say one of my primary influences uh once i got to graduate school was jennifer tamayo um who is uh you know she, she's a performance artist uh, i'm sorry i think they go by they now they're a performance artist um they are 
uh, a multimedia artist, they're a filmmaker, they um, just, and their art is very confrontational and, and interrogating and um, implicating. And mm. uh, it just feels so alive to me. Um, mm. I love, love their work. Um, but yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. So like confrontational, like on like on a personal level, like a societal level, like, yeah. you know, like, like, yeah, societal or more so the, within the individual. Yeah, no, I would say um, societal, specifically, you know, whiteness and borders and Latinos who like benefit from empire, right? Mm. Like um, she's very focused on anti-blackness and um, indigeneity and, um, you know, as a, a migrant poet, you know, themselves, they you know, really focused um, on those issues. But um, yeah, no, their their work is is just really stunning, um, mm. you know, innovative. Um, yeah, Jennifer Tamayo. Would Jennifer identify as an immigrant or as like Chicana, like? Um, they are from Colombia. Okay. Um, so they would, I I don't know. I, I'm not sure what they would identify as, um, specifically because Latinx is such a a vexed uh, <laughs> identity, right? Uh, um, I also have this thing where I don't know how, how to identify. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily identify as a Chicana because that's specific to California. I grew up in Texas. Uh -huh. Um, and it's also a political identity right. um, with a political history. Right. They're tied to like concepts like Aslan, yes. which um, I didn't even know about until I was mm. in graduate school. Um, I come from, you know, working class Texans um, who are, you know, migrants themselves mm. and I don't know. In Texas, that just means you're Mexican. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like there's no, um, you, you can't identify as American because like the state doesn't really allow you. So, mm -hmm. you know, you are put into this box of ethnicity. And so I don't know, like, mm -hmm. I guess I identify as a racialized outcast, you know, um, Wow. But that's, that's, yeah, identity is tricky. <laughs> mm. Have you read Pocho by actually by another Villarreal? The book Pocho? Mm -mm. Okay. Um, it's Jose Antonio Villarreal. And some people will say it's the, it was the first like Chicano lit. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess that's the end of the conversation. I haven't read it, but, <laughs> but uh, I was just so much wondering about like, like that particular term. I don't know if that's like more of a California term. You know, does that is that one that that is you would see as offensive, like? Um, oh, no. Well, so if a Mexican called me, like a someone from you know Mexico mm -hmm. called me a pocha, um, it's meant as like an insult, right? Like you have been so thoroughly Americanized that now right. that when you try to come back, your Spanish is a little wonky, yeah. you're or, or you don't know Spanish at all, uh -huh. um, and you act American and you you know. Um, I think something that like is that really plagues, um, you know, Latinidad is specifically Mexican Americans and Chicanos is this idea of being a traitor. Mm. Um, and it started with the Malinche, which is the first poem in my book. Um, and it's specifically 
feminized this idea of mm. being a traitor. Um, you know, Malinche, as you know, um, is the indigenous um, translator for Hernan Cortes, uh, Mexico's uh, conquistador. And it's said that she helped him um, conquer um, Guatemoc, right? In Tenochtitlan? I believe you're right. Maybe the Cuauhtémoc the second, maybe. I can't. I can't remember. But yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so that that she helped Hernán Cortés conquer Mexico, right. and therefore, uh, and you know, she had his child, and she was his lover, and so this idea of being a traitor is um, uh, part of the mestizo identity. So mestizo being, you know, half uh, Spanish, half uh, indigenous, right? People say, people say that was the beginning of it, right? It, like you said, like she was like a the race first, trader. She was, right? Yeah. So our racial identity is rooted in this idea of being a traitor or betrayal hmm. of one's own. And so, so many things radiate out from that. Hmm. Like the act of migration is, you know, um, the word is malinchista. Okay. So like, if you are a trader in some way, you're a malinchista, mm -hmm. right? Like if you lose the taste for spicy food, right? Oh. You're a trader, you're a pocha, you're a malinchista. Uh, uh. Um, it can be playful, but mostly it's hostile. Sure. You know? Um, so yeah, I I think like that's why I, I got just so sick of like Latinx discourse and Latinidad because there's like, there's no acknowledgement of the trauma of, you know, mm. or like there's little acknowledgement of like the inherited trauma of um, being forcibly sort of mixed and right, colonized right, 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 right. and being simultaneously responsible for that and mm. victims of that. Mm. Right. Um, it's uh, and there's just a lot of like lateral violence and, okay. um, and so Latinidad is is not this easy thing, right? Sure. Um, wow, I took a lot of time with that. No, 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 no. What a great answer. Well, Octavio Paz, I don't think he, I don't think he was talking about the exact same thing you're talking about, but he called like like he said like la raza cosmica, mm -hmm. right? With you know a lot of like you know, African background. That's a also a very very controversial concept right. too. It's pretty controversial um, because la raza cosmica. Um, is this concept of um, this race that is evolved because it is so mixed, right? Mm. It uh, it is like the the three los tres raíces or the three roots: um, African, European, indigenous, and the mixture that you know racial admixture is what mm -hmm. creates this evolved race which is mm. you know the mestizo the mexican it became part of this like mexican nationalist um rhetoric mm. um and it oppressed indigenous people it like uh was a way of like um stripping them of their indigeneity and encouraging them to assimilate um mm. you know um it, it it also is a theory that in and of itself has been critiqued as I think like what they were trying to do because the Nazis were so against race mixing mm. is to embrace race mixing as like right. this radical anti-fascist mm. thing, right? But 
you know, there, there are folks who critique Ansaldúa and the idea of La Raza Cósmica as based in eugenics because it imagines a world uh. of all mixed people without blackness and without indigeneity. Mm. Um, and so it becomes an anti-black, anti-indigenous idea, right? Even though its intentions were to be anti-fascist, right? Uh-huh. Um, wow. So, that's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> language is never neutral, right? Language, language is never, is never I mean, neutral. Yeah. And it's we're like anything having to do with Latinidad is always that trap. There's uh, always that trap. Like mm. if you try to embrace it, which side are you embracing? Right? Are you mm. embracing the oppressor or are you claiming oppression? Sure. Um, you know, are are you in trying to uplift your people, you know, you get called a eugenicist or anti-black, yeah. anti-indigenous. Uh-huh. which is valid right right um, but like that's why latinidad is so vexed um mm-hmm. so i find labels like chicanex um you know mestizo like way too limiting and okay. small um and and full of um i don't know what not potholes <laughs> <laughs> I guess yeah, like full full of full of potholes. Um <laughs> like intellectually, theoretically, spiritually. Well, I, I mean obviously I I mean I love how much thought you put into a word or you know, three words and five words, and that's what makes you such a great writer, you know. Um, you know, Beast Meridian was is the award winning 2017. You can see it kind of up there oh <laughs> my right shoulder there, you know. But title we'll get to the cover is is such a an, an elegy of sorts, I believe, for your grandma. Yes. Right. Beautiful. I I don't know. He's not the only one who did it, but I'm I'm thinking a little bit of like David Foster Wallace. I I don't know, you know, and many others, but you the way you use verbs, you know, you use a verb like one of your poem. The last poem of the collection is Estrellada, and you use the verb distance. No distance, I horizon. Um in one of the poems in part two, there are three parts. You write about heaven groaning blood, that verb groan, which is a verb already, right? But the very interesting way you use it. Um, another quote is, quote, that I have scienced the stones into a circle. Another verb, and now uses the verb expert. I expert meat from the wilderness. Um, you know, such an originality of language. You talked about how you talked about some of your philosophy of that and kind of like the if I'm saying it correctly, like more like the visceral, more like the body connection sometimes than like the the rational. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously your your facility with language is just incredible. I guess, I guess getting to the question, you can you can play the fifth if you want, but like this idea of you know the poet is speaker. I mean, is this you know, could this be classified as nonfiction? Is this uh, you know, a hyper hyperbolic version of you? Is it none of the above? Like, I don't know, how would you answer that? Yeah. Um, so this actually uh, will probably go into the title, but um, the book, when I was writing it, I was writing these like sort of essayistic fragments, um, you know, individual poems, um, mm-hmm. prose that became poems, um, prose, you know, uh, that just became kind of like prose blocks. Um, I started working with the page as a field rather than, um, you know, mm. as like linear or sure. a linear space. Um, and that was to capture different registers of the speaker. So like the, the first 
part of the book um, is my child self, mm-hmm. right? The middle speakers and speaker is like this sort of um, imagined ancestral self, um, animal self. Mm-hmm. And that speaker in that fairy tale portion in the back um, is this monstrous self. And so Beast Meridian, I was, you know, thinking of the bestiary as a form um, and as a genre. And uh, the bestiary, you know, has proper animals in it, but it also has chimeras and like mythic animals, like the Minotaur, right? Uh And um, I became very interested in like where the split was in a centaur, where the Mm -hmm. split was in a siren of, you know, and like what... um, how that how that became embodied because like i think of the border as embodied as you know um it's a splice in time here's Mm. my child self that grew up in mexico and in the borderlands and then here's my adult self so there's there's a split there there's a meridian Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. um you know uh my mexican racialized self and my american self and then the way you know people in mexico perceive me which is like this like you know, Americanized, um, you know, um, that split, um, the literal embodied split of the border in, in the mind, right? Like Mm -hmm. the split between languages, the split Mm -hmm. between, um, identities, um, and the, the way that racialization does sort of, um, strip you of humanity makes Mm. you into a kind of beast. Mm. Um, and so, I think I was like playing with that concept, um, at, you know, speaking from this dual identity. <laughs> My dog is ready to go out. Um, this, is, this is her walk time. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's that's kind of where the speaker is coming from this uh, speaking from this liminal space where the identities begin to shift mm-hmm. or change. And there is a kind of uncertainty. There's right. You know, so it's always an, a, a speaker caught between something, no right? And so the border itself becomes the place of the site of reckoning. No, no non-poet has ever uttered the word liminal before, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Only poets, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, so your your epigraph, and I'm I'm an epigraph junkie. Um, your epigraph, you cite Fanon on mm-hmm. the bestiary, the bestiary. Sorry, is it pronounced bestiary or bestiary? Bestiary. Bestiary. And like the settler versus the na- the native, right? I mean, Fanon obviously has some incredible things to say about colonization and, and you know, um, oh, I can never remember the thought. The When two, two dissonant thoughts are in the mind against each other, uh, it's a it's a simple word I can't think of. But And then um, Ansuldua? Is that the? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of Napantla, which, you know, thank you for the, the Wikipedia rabbit hole and this idea of like an in between, right? But it's not the way I read it, it's not a just like totally in between, like neutral, right? It's, it's not just it is what it is. There There is a, it's not neutral. How would you describe Napantla? And it's, and it's, you know, you cite it in a few poems at least. Um, and sometimes, you know, a lot of times it's there without being there. How did that inform the the writing? Yeah, the Nepantla is like um uh it's literally the liminal, right? Like mm-hmm. a, a place that shares um 
actually i would love to look it up because i i yeah. don't wanna... <laughs> yeah. like i you know it's one of those like things that you can like easily um anglicize and mm. i don't i don't want to do that okay so it's specific right to chicanx latinx um uh ideas okay um, this concept of in-betweenness it's a it's a nawa word though mm. and um i actually have i'm i was writing about it for my dissertation it's both the ridge and the valley okay so it's where from the ridge you can see both sides of the mountain mm -hmm. from the valley you can see no nothing but in front of you right mm. which makes you vulnerable um it's also a kind of way of thinking about knowledge and memory mm -hmm. right so like the ridge is like um memory and the valley is forgetting okay um so it Anzaldúa writes about this in, um, what is it, Light in the Dark, um, which I think is actually theoretically her her most rigorous work, mm -hmm. um, because she writes about the Nepantla as like, you know, uh, a place on a journey, right, mm -hmm. where you have the choice to stay behind or go forward. Um, and uh, the state of in-betweenness is... Um, ever moving ever evolving mm -hmm. um you know pushing you toward one thing pulling you toward another mm -hmm. um what characterizes a nepantla is instability is non-normativity is okay. so that's why um christopher soto um he has an anthology called nepantla mm -hmm. um queer poets you know it's a it's an anthology of queer poets um and you know nepantla is a very queer um idea as well right okay uh, okay so here this is it it says like only by keeping to the middle way does one walk on and live mm. um we travel along a mountain ridge while we live on earth an abyss yawning on either side if you stray too far one way or the other you will fall away mm. um that's what i mean right like seeing oneself on a ridge and seeing oneself in a valley right 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 yeah. i'm telling you pocho pocho that book is uh there's just so much about that, about that in between, you know, as a non Latino, non, you know, Mexican background, you know, Pocho, but I just, I, I, I we all understand this idea of like living in two worlds, yeah, you know, living in your, in your dad's world, living in your own world. And obviously that, that book is also very, um, very specifically Mexican, Mexican American, but I appreciate that. Uh, and the Pantla, very interesting. The first poem is of the, of the collection is, um, is the elegy for the woman you're named after am i correct yes and um just i mean i mean beautiful there's there's a line we hatched myself which you know just language wise we hatched myself there's just so much going on there first person singular plural and that the diagnosis was like a life-giving diagnosis no no it was um pardon me obviously you know better than i do but but I just as far as I'm not phrasing that correctly, but just the fact that the the diagnosis, how much how much she gave life to you and so many, despite her diagnosis. Yes. Right. Yeah. About how does how she is still giving life to this day. 
Yeah. Right. She is. She's your model on the cover. She is. Would Would you Would you be able to read that one? Yeah. Um. Or on the spot, I, but I know it's a great one. No, 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 no. Um. I actually, I've never read this one. Um. For like a reading or aloud mm. or anything like that. We're honored. Angelica, an elegy. Diagnosed, your hands became my bread, and we ate them, and the hair flew off your head and wove great red nests, Scylla, for us women. Your black cervix rot, my first egg drop, and so we hatched myself. This is how we said you would survive. And it ends on a colon. So uh, this is how we said you would survive. Uh, colon is, you know, implies this speech that follows. Mm. Um, and I love the use of the colon in the rosary because it's like that's when the congregation speaks when we all speak. Right. Um, right. And there are many speakers in this book. You know, there mm. are many, um, especially in the bestiary. You know, I try to give mm. uh, elders that have passed on a voice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, ancestors known and unknown. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, well, bless bless her that. The diagnosis part that I was referring to was that first line, mm -hmm. um, and uh, just the the idea. I think of when you're talking about earlier, talk about the novena. I have a a family member whose name came from the novena that her mom prayed for for her to be born. Oh, you know, that's... so I I have that. I feel like you know, eighty five percent of what I wrote as a youngster was about my grandma, and grandpa. You know, yeah. And so <laughs> um, just that you've you've uh, honored her so much. It's that's a beautiful thing. The first poem is you talked about. Well, so that actually comes before part one is even named. Yes. Right. So, it's you know, outside of all of the. Yes. I mean, you break every, you know, you break every structure. We love it. Right. The, <laughs> the, the first poem, if you will, after part one starts is an illness of pines. And that's the, the reimagining of Malinche. You talked about her. I mean, you know, over the years. Right. I mean, like you said, very well, like obviously it, it matters that this is a woman who's seen as betrayer. It's, you know, it goes back to the Adam and it goes back to Eve. Right. Right. Oh, it was her fault. You know, Adam should have known what he was doing. You know, he should have, or Adam couldn't control himself, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, and just, you know, as far as I know from the outside, it seems like that Malinche has been reimagined as almost, you know, as like you said, a betrayer to perhaps a feminist icon or, you know, but definitely a reimagining about how much agency she herself had, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, corrections to the Malinche histories, um, a lot of scholarship dedicated to that, mm -hmm. um, you know, specifically because historians in the past were male, right? Mm -hmm. And um, misogyny is real. And, um, you know, if if history has a scapegoat, um, generally it, it will be a woman, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, and, and that's what informs the structure of Malinche as a poem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it is a text box with an empty text box in the middle. Yes. And um, at the time I was writing poems, um, I was listening to a lot of like murder ballads, like Irish <laughs> uh, class, like, you know, classic Irish murder ballads. I love I as, love as one does, as, as one, one does, does, you know, I love dark shit. Like, I just, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, I consider yeah. myself, I guess, like a black metal poet. <laughs> yeah, I love it. But, um. So, and so I was like, I love the idea of a murder ballad. I'm going to write one, huh. um, but I'm not Irish. And, you know, I've 
you know, the, the stuff that was going on um, with missing and, and um, murdered indigenous women at the time, hmm. with, um, you know, femicides in Tijuana and, uh, you know, lo- lots of violence. El Paso um, too, right? Yeah, you know, um, Tijuana and... and uh, Is that Ciudad Juarez? Yeah, Ciudad Juarez and Matamoros, like, mm. you know, uh, we were just hearing a lot of uh, worry from family being told not to visit. Mm. And so... Um, I murder ballads are from the perspective of the murderer. So I was thinking a lot about, I think I was just sort of writing in this mode. Um, what, what does a guilty, cause you know, we're, we're brought up to have so much guilt and so much shame, right? Women and Catholicism, and, women, yeah. mm-hmm. Marianismo, uh, mm. you know, forces us to, live in guilt and shame and that is considered virtuous Mm. so what if what does that what does it mean to rebel against that right to rebel against being good and you know to embrace the monstrous Mm. right and so it's like um i hunt my victim in the valley right um and the valley being like this place of non of forgetting um which to me is the state of of losing your indigeneity right like mestizos have forgotten our indigenous right culture our indigenous selves right right? um so yeah so there's there's a lot of Mm. speakers and things going on in there um and i imagine the malinche as like this disappeared as like Mm. someone who has been Mm. silenced by history someone Mm. who um we love to stuff language and narratives into her and Mm. um make her emblematic of a certain kind of woman a certain kind of narrative um and so i really wanted to visualize the silence you know um Mm. and also like capture a a a rebellious you know voice right right wow well yeah the even just the pines you know just brings that 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 quiet but kind of like an eerie quiet right you mentioned um the the murder balance if you have you ever seen the movie? Have you ever seen uh, the the other guys with Will Ferrell and and uh, Mark Wahlberg? You remember? No, I haven't. So he he's singing like I want to say Irish dirges or Irish murder ballads like at the bar. Will Ferrell is. It's I'll send you a clip. It's just <laughs> out of nowhere. They're just having a drink, having fun. And he just he just steps up and he sings these you know just dark like like type of murder ballads. Right. I'm thinking of like uh, the end by the Doors. You know that song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you said, from the point of view of the murderer. Help me with the the chronology. Am I correct that like assimilation rooms comes pretty soon after illness of pines or do you see a a, com- a camaraderie, a connection between those with, you talk about Malinche, you know, about, about like embracing the beast. Assimilation rooms, I want to talk about that. So I don't know if they're connected or not, I want to talk about them because that that poem is incredible. Do you see it? Do you see a direct or indirect connection to like the, the Malinche or not necessarily? Yeah, no, the, the boxes are the visual connector. Um, so like the inverted white box mm-hmm. as opposed to the whiteness that surrounds the the little boxes of the assimilation rooms sure. okay sure that 
there that's the inversion so the malinche is the frame the okay. original traitorous woman mm-hmm. right um is the frame right for all of the box poems that follow right 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 okay yeah yeah, yeah. i mean there's definitely a family tree of sorts right down yeah. to the to the um you know the, to the teenage girl who's you know put into the what would you call the 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 place is the facility um you know it's part that alternative school that i was yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, yeah, and, yeah. um part you know psychiatric hospital which was another another place mm-hmm. um, from my adolescence and um the assimilation room sequence ends with my intake photo right the um so that's that's in spanglish i would say with footnotes at least the beginning the footnotes are the translations um great i loved it when you shouted out swv i get so weak in the knee you didn't see, i don't know if you said that song but right and a lot of the rest of the of that piece reminded me of like girl by jamaica kincaid mm-hmm. like almost like second person like command but then you have you i mean talking about playing with form you have footnotes on top of footnotes so that they're mostly um illegible mm-hmm. right um the the part i talk about this kind of like second person is like you know one of the lines that stood out to me was learn to serve classmates with a smile which you kind of referenced earlier, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this this metaphor of like the dark horse being broken. And so, you know, the three parts of the of the book, they're, you know, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but all right, like there's like a there's trouble, then there's, you know, there's there's the introduction, there's trouble, and then there's the way back is the apologue, right? But it's just like this idea of like the horse being broken. So assimilation, we know what that means in the literal sense. Is how did you take assimilation to to, how is assimilation to be taken when you when you write assimilation rooms and then the poem that follows is an assimilation progress report how much i guess forcing how much um agency was taken away i guess oh um so the assimilation room sequence assimilation progress report is actually part of the sequence mm-hmm. um and it it uh ends with the intake photo but it's a a gradual sort of taking away of identity and agency right gradual yes each each room is like um uh a kind of core memory that shouldn't be a core memory Hmm. but it's a core memory because it's the point where i felt i i had lost a part of myself or i had been silenced in some way or Mm -hmm. it hurt in some way um and assimilation progress report. I remember I I would always dread progress report. It was like that thing <laughs> we had to take home to get our parents to sign in between the report cards, because progress reports. That's where my teachers would go off because mm. uh, the report card is just the letter grade. Yes, but they'd be like you know like Vanessa is very you know disruptive and blah 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 and you know um, and they would give me really really poor grades you know, um, on my progress report. So it always started, um, you know, conflict at home. Um, and so the idea of the progress report was more violent than the report card because my report cards are great. <laughs> but yeah, like yeah, the yeah. progress report itself was like really, and I just remember, you know, it was just like a little table in a word doc you know uh, with your six periods or whatever but the handwriting was so tiny from oh no all the, had to fit it all in right yeah all the teachers just fucking complaining <laughs> um and so this was my response you know uh like jim texas history mm. like, 
it was it was just my little way of saying fuck you yeah yeah, yeah. um at the end it's alternative school and it's the scene um i remember you know very clearly of this student who just didn't want to be harassed by the police that day the campus police that day and they slammed his head down on the concrete and um put handcuffs on him and he was bleeding and i just remember just being like what the fuck is this place you know um and just being really disturbed by that and like you know the thought that like any of us belonged there hmm. so um yeah. that was you know sort of a big uh, moment of losing oneself or as assimilation uh losing a sense of of innocence right um, yeah so i don't know i i guess to answer your question it is about a gradual loss of agency because it begins with you know the family unit um and like a very like child Spanish where everything is made um, miniature, like tortillas, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Tortillas, right? Like, um, uh, and that is like a, a, a warm way of speaking Spanish to each other. Okay, like yes. make Everything diminutive. <clears throat> and then it ends with institutionalization mm -hmm. and isolation. And, you know, um, so her people were taken away, her family, her right. friends, her community her school um opportunity you know um and it ends with essentially this uh suicide attempt um so yeah i hope i clarified <laughs> you, oh I, I i no i appreciate that very much even you know even the ito nita I, I appreciate that like okay that makes you know it makes even more sense and that 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 the structure you know of assimilation progress report is like a progress report um there are so many good lines. One of the lines, quote, the voices that matter, like these are kind of like lessons learned. The voices that matter are the people that matter. Mm -hmm. um, referring to on the road, you know, because every every white boy is reading that, right? <laughs> quote, but South, also South, matter from physics, right? Because we were learning about matter and- Uh-huh, right, so right. Like yes, no, you. I think you even put matter noun, like in parentheses, one of them. Quote, Sal Paradise loved a Mexican Mexican girl, but not enough to name her damn um you know and of course you know you had some teachers who like you know love that love those states rights right yeah it was just states right the confederacy there's nothing you know of all the images of all the words of all the the wordplay in this great collection i might think i might remember most is the idea of the parallax right it's repeated at least twice quote the effective position upon viewing an object and i love how in some ways it starts with parallax and it ends with parallax. It's this home plate to home plate idea. And just the way that you build up, um, it just reminds us again and again and again, like, yes, it, it does matter how you're viewing something, right? Your family, you know, the, 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 the speaker's family losing agency, the idea of migration, forced migration, colonization, um, you know, and the more societal sense all the way to the individual who, you know, is put into this place that, is not fit for human beings, you know, at, at, at the young age and seeing all the things that this person did, um, you know, more themes, of course, that come through about, we talked about like this idea of like the women, the women as trustworthy in, in situations where maybe it's helpful and, and also very, you know, seen as untrustworthy and just the idea of the ocean as mothering it's dead was one of the, again, one of the important verbs in the poem is called time two headed 1984 corpus. Mm -hmm. 
there's a great before and after there's a there's an ocean and there's the gulf between this young couple and then that's juxtaposed with the the wearied mom the mom who's doing everything you know or, or working you know working her butt off and then you know dad's playing tunes and you know kind of relaxing and it's just this idea of yeah just uh just a juxtaposition of of, of age and responsibilities right girl body gift you put girl body as one word yeah quote first dress as a boy and early to 11 that's a great adjective and early to 11 i know exactly what that means you know i never seen those words put together like that but yep i know what that means um aquí no quiero jotas was a line and with all my new names i can now fathom my father his father saying all the things he doesn't want me to be that my father his father was so crushing to me you know, just the things passed down generation to generation, mm-hmm. right? How much, how much about like ancestral ties and memory was on your mind subtly or not? Oh, it, it was 100% on my mind throughout, throughout. Um, because I think that like the violence that the little violence that I've seen, and I've seen a, a, a tremendous amount of violence, you know, mm-hmm. compared to other folks, right? The little violence I've seen is all connected to generational trauma, which mm-hmm. is you know a very like sort of trendy thing, which is I sure. it's always a shame when things become trendy and we actually lose right made it relevant in the first place. Um like I remember my you know for kids who grew up in Chicanx and uh Mexican American homes, um, machismo is very uh, typical, and um, that includes um, corporal punishment for your kids. Mm. Um, you know, to really escalated degrees, and the excuse is always, "Well, that's how that's how I was disciplined. That's right, how I was right, punished." Right, right, right. Um, and actually, you know, my parents did it worse, so you have it, mm. and. Um, that's that cycle just repeats itself and so i i was thinking about you know the things that i'd survived um and you know the things that my mother had survived my grandmother had survived um without being too explicit right mm-hmm. um but just showing right. showing the cycle showing the pattern mm-hmm. um and like how it manifests in a moment of violence mm-hmm. um you know uh, yeah i think the you said not being explicit. I'm sure you had, you know, personal reasons not putting out too much personal information or whatever personal history, but like, but also it wasn't heavy handed and that's what made it so great. Right. I mean, the subtlety of it, like the understatement, I always feel like there's, this is what happened. This is how it's stated. And so that, that space in between makes the reader think even more, you know, like appreciate it even more. And so the subtlety worked these. So, you know, in the second part, there's so a lot about ancestral memory and, Carmen, the ancient bass, I was gonna say bass, bass is one of the, you know, one of the titles, quote, you only knew my body wrinkled as oak bark eroded by water, graying with a slow life that has not been kind to me. I mean, wow. Guadalupe, of course, with, you know, La Virgen, there's Carlos, the wounded coyote. Are these real names possibly from the family? Yeah, yeah, they're they're right in my family right there's the idea of in the poems escape a wax wing migration and bestia quote migrate the meridian we talked about don't cry no llores no no tengas miedo one of the lines from carlos the wounded coyote 
quote, what I did, and then colon, I carried each of them. Now, it reminds me of that that poem that's kind of become trite by now, like the poem slash prayer, you know, about Jesus and the footsteps. Yeah. <laughs> but I just I just thought that was like what I did. And again, that colon, like you talked about, was so interesting going back to like like liturgy and church and I carried each of them. There's no period there. I just love that. Um, even a retelling of like Juan Diego and La Virgen and just so interesting with this idea, with these ideas of like these, I mean, I think of like horoscopes, right? Like the Taurus and, and these like mythical animals, like you talked about, you, you know, there was this a way of basically saying like, okay, I can talk about family, but I'm not talking about family. Yeah. It, I think it was, it was a way to honor their legacy mm -hmm. without um, bringing and also to honor their their privacy, right? Sure. Their stories not mine. Um, yeah. but there is this like this I do want to honor them, right. but also not like idealize them or sanctify, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so like how does one honor one's ancestors? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and also like these are these are people I knew. Right. Um they're the ones that I didn't know or you know don't know or can't remember the names of um i tried to account for as well right but that section that bestiary section also starts to break down into this like you know sort of mythic space um uh like a sort of mythic space of migration itself mm -hmm. being um very tinged with violence and fear and um you know it's not <laughs> You, you don't just yeah like the the things that push away. you yeah. yeah the things that push you forward are 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 dangerous um mm. so yeah like the juan diego thing i i so resent <laughs> december 14th and like the uh -huh. narrative that comes of um la virgen de, la, uh, de guadalupe yeah. and it's like framed as this like beautiful story of colonization and um so i made it super violent and bloody. yes <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> obviously, obviously loss is is a big theme. Um, you know, loss of culture, loss of history, you know, the promised land we talked about. Um, one of the poems, Border Semiotics, goes from illegal to invisible, which is so interesting. You know, one is so like, you know, Fox News, ah, 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 you know, you know, calling these horrible names to invisible and kind of you know makes the reader think which one's worse. You know, they're they're both horrible in different ways. But I just, you know, the law, the, the poem Disassociative Disassociative States, it's numbered. It's about the loss of your grandmothers. There's the three, which is three is say murió. And then four is just brackets with space in between. And that that's top my breath, you know. As I think it's supposed to for the reader. And then ten as well. Ten is, and I must ask you, reader, for just one moment. Just this idea of like that we're reading it. I feel like we're reading it as you're writing it along with it is, is which what makes this collection incredible. The, the, the collection ends on a positive note, but not cheesy, not Disney. The poem, the poem comes full circle in many ways, but again, it's just uh, the way that you get there, the structures, the lack of structures, just an incredible work of art. I just, just want to thank you for getting into the lab a little bit with you and getting into your brain about some of this, uh, of what can be explained. I want to thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I um, really appreciate your deep reading of the poems and your analysis. And, um, you know, you, anytime a reader is able to open up 
a poem like that um, is such a gift. So thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine and the gift was was received by me for sure. So I want to thank you and, and wish you all the great luck with your future work. Thank you so much. It's great such, to see you. It's <laughs> such a pleasure. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. pleasure it has been to speak with Vanessa Angelica Villarreal. Continue good luck to her and her writing and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career. Thank you for listening to this episode, episode 137. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Spread the word. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills with Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills with Will PO1. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 138 with Miguel Valerio. Professor Valerio earns his PhD from The Ohio State University. His research and teaching focused on the African diaspora and the literature and culture of the Iberian world from the late medieval period to the present. He and I will be discussing his book, The Black Kings and Queens of Colonial Mexico City, Identity, Performance, and Power, 1539-1640. This episode will air on August 19th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, whose works, like Beast Meridian, give you chills at will.